My name is Justin Gage, and you're tuned in to the Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions Podcast with your host, Jason Woodbury. Welcome back to Transmissions. Music shapes and fundamentally changes us. Once we have listened, we do not stop. We do not ever recover from music. We will return again and again to the radio, the record store, the bedroom where girls listen to records all day. That's a quote from the great new Ricky Lee Jones book, Lance Chance Texaco. She joins us this week on Transmissions to discuss writing the book, Uh, and her experiences in California in the 70s when she became a huge star. Uh, We get to really cover a lot of stuff from the book, including that incredible SNL performance that really catapulted her name into the headlines. Um, Yeah, and we also talk a lot about Phoenix because it's really rare uh, to have uh, an eloquent book like this uh, with so much of it set in, in the town where I live. So we, we get into that, and uh, Ricky was a great guest. I really appreciate her taking the time to join us here on Transmission. So without much delay, we're going to get into the conversation. But first, a word from our sponsors. If you dread looking at your credit card statements, you're not alone. So many Americans experienced financial hardship in the last year. Upstart can help you regain your footing and get things back on track. Upstart is the fast and easy way to pay off your debt with a personal loan, all done online. Whether it's paying off credit cards, consolidating high interest debt, or funding personal expenses, over half a million people have used Upstart to get one fixed monthly payment. Upstart knows you're more than just your credit score and is expanding access to affordable credit. Unlike other lenders, Upstart considers your income and current employment to find you a smaller rate for your loan. With a five-minute online rate check, you can see your rate up front for loans between $1,000 to $50,000. You can receive funds as fast as one business day after accepting your loan. Find out how Upstart can lower your monthly payments today when you go to upstart.com slash aquariumdrunkard. That's upstart.com slash aquariumdrunkard. Don't forget to use our URL to let them know we sent you. Loan amounts will be determined based on your credit, income, and certain other information provided in your loan application. Go to upstart.com slash aquarium drunkard. And now my conversation with Ricky Lee Jones. Thanks for tuning in to Transmissions. All right. Well, well, Ricky, thanks so much for taking the time to join us here on Aquarium Drunkard transmissions it's a real thrill to have you here i'm so glad to be here thanks for having me and my bird friend yeah yeah (laughs) so so how have things been in in new orleans lately well the summer started and that's always oppressive but then it's been raining uh so it's been cooler and uh 
people have unmasked, so they're pretty happy, jubilant out there. Uh, and, and they love being with each other again and being back to normal. Yeah, it feels it feels pretty good, I'm sure. Uh, did how did, how did you hang in through through the pandemic? Were, I were you? I did pretty well. I'm a I'm a secular person. I'm not part of the religion of hanging out, so <laughs> I stay in mostly anyway. But I did start to notice that even the little bit I like to go out, even the little bit that I did like to go out, I was starting to really feel blue. So I, I could relate yeah. out there again. Yeah. Well, congratulations on this fantastic book. It was an incredible read. Um, I already knew you were a great writer because I've listened to your music, but, uh, you know, I don't know, you pick up some of these music memoirs and you, you nev- you're never sure, you know? And uh, uh, But boy, this was an incredible read. I... I really, really liked it. Did Did you enjoy writing it? Oh, I loved writing it. I'm going to come in because it's buzzing out there. It took sure. me <laughs> many years. And uh, I had been thinking about it in the years before I wrote it. So it's a delight uh, to tell you what happened. And the written word is like creating a universe. You can go anywhere you want to go. And the more you rewrite, <laughs> yeah, the, the more uh, control you have over where you go. Some of the earlier ones had a lot of prose. And I was guessing, you know, I should write more descriptions and, and, uh, then every once in a while, I'd want to make a point. <laughs> Here's what I have to say about that. Yeah. And so it took a long time for those things to fall away and the and the beat of the story to remain. Yeah. 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 You said you wrote it for for it, it took it took a while. How how many years did you work on it? I really think I think it was seven years, but. My, uh, the Grove, my publishers said they were talking to me for 10 or 12 years. So, oh no, my agent said we started talking in 2009 or 2007. So, wow, it was a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was worth it. It's an incredible book, as I've mentioned. And, you know, I didn't know how much Phoenix would be in it. That's where I'm at. So, so you, at one point, tell a story about driving a stolen car down Bethany home and and that's my house is right off Bethany home we're off Bethany (laughs) home in the Chris town area so uh, yeah that's where I grew up not not too far (laughs) from there that's cool yeah well so I was I was really like the Phoenix stuff was was really was really great was how would you characterize Phoenix as far as a place to spend time you spent time in other places too growing up but Phoenix was where a big chunk of it was when you look back on Phoenix what are your impressions of of the city well then I think it was a rarefied and magical honor to grow up in a desert um it was still a pretty small city or big town. It, it wasn't anything like it is now. 
And uh, there was one park in Canto Park. I don't know what you got now, but I bet you got more than one. We've got more than uh, one, but we've still gotten Canto. It's a good one. Yeah. And there was Scottsdale had a mall and Christown and maybe something on Thomas Road. But that was or maybe that was the one. But there just weren't very many places to go. And I was a child, so I'm not the best person to describe Phoenix. Sure. Because I only saw it as from a child's view in the car. But yeah, uh, yeah, it, it it one thing I see now is it's totally uh, built and when I was there, there'd be a half acre empty and then uh, a housing tract and then uh, uh, three acres empty and then uh, Orange Grove. And, you know, it was still very, very interesting that houses sprouting up like mushrooms, you know. Yeah. Yeah. You you write about moving to moving to Glendale at one point, I think. And you, you talk about how that's pretty much the edge of town at the time when you were there. Yeah. That was it. There wasn't much more. There is, there is much more now, you know, it keeps going. It just, it's a huge, it's a sprawl, but yeah, I don't know. Writing you, I was, it was just such a thrill to read some of that stuff, to read about, you know, watching Wallace and Ladmo on TV, the children's thing. I remember that even from when I was a kid, you know, and it was like, uh, you talk, I think about seeing CCR at the Coliseum. Uh Uh-huh. That's right. (laughs) Uh, and I was like, that's, that, that sounds great. Uh, do you remember other shows? Do you remember seeing any other bands here growing up? Sure, I did. I saw um, uh, Simon and Garfunkel, and I saw either Peter and Gordon or Chad and Jeremy. I think it was Peter <laughs> and Gordon played, and uh, one of them had a hat on, and he threw the hat out, and I grabbed it, and some surfers took it away from me. I was so proud to be the guy who got the got the rock stars hat yeah Those were the, i think the chad and jeremy thing was the first concert i i ever went to yeah yeah but you Gordon, whoever it was sorry <laughs> <laughs> but but you knew uh pretty much early on that that music was was your sort of your true love right yeah well i also like liked acting mm. and uh and i'd been studying ballet all my life and tap and I knew that I wanted to perform and, and whether that, you know, whether I got lucky as an actor or a singer, <clears throat> I would have been happy either way, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, there are parts of the, the there, there's, I mean, gosh, there are so many moments in the book that feel so vivid. And, and I think about the way you tend to, the way you describe scenes, the way you dis- describe what's happening around you at times, and and it makes me wonder, you know, do you have like a pretty good memory, or are you somebody who takes notes or keeps diaries, things like that? Were there things you had to consult back on, or was a lot of this straight from your head? Well, the childhood memories... <clears throat> are cemented and vivid and they never move. Yeah. The closer to now, the harder it is to retain. Um, sure. So that's how that was. Those are, those are really vivid memories. And there was a time when I was 20 or 25 where I remember thinking if I tried, I bet I could remember every day of my life. There was still a thread 
from this moment to that, to that week, to that month, to that year. I could find my way all the way back to my first memories. So for whatever reason, whatever that is, that those early years are still powerfully uh, vivid and cinematic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the more recent stuff, or the or the stuff, <laughs> a little, a, li- a little bit either, less so. Either there's no more room in there, or you know, <laughs> a, as a famous person, I meet a lot of people, and uh, I just don't have a, a, a facility for remembering names, and maybe because I don't have anything to hang the events on, they yeah. just get washed away. Um, so, so there's a lot of people who said, yeah, I remember we drove down to Mexico and I'm like, Oh, really? I don't remember that. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Did you have any conversations with people as you were building the book to sort of like go back and either discuss things that had happened or commiserate? No, no. Uh, I didn't, you know what? Uh, my friend began to fact check stuff. Hmm. Like um, when I talk about being arrested in Detroit, he did some fact checking just about Detroit. And as much as he could, um, I was at a Jimi Hendrix concert. He found that concert online. So, but other than that, I don't think, you know, unfortunately, so many of the people I knew are dead. And, um, and there's a, like Ivan died and Mark died, but um and I don't talk to the rest of them. So. Yeah, <laughs> you, you, uh, there's a million things that come to my mind. The first thing, you know, you tell great stories about run-ins with people, and you have some pretty incredible run-ins in this book. You know, Bob Dylan calls you a true poet. That's a pretty cool moment. Yeah, it was a great moment. And then you got to when I when I got to the part where you were meeting Van Morrison in Ireland. You know. I was like, halfway through the story, I couldn't believe it. I was like, wow, this just seems so magical and so, so perfect. And then there's a turn in the story, which I, I don't want to spoil too much, but I don't think that many people will be surprised to learn that Van Morrison can sometimes be a testy person. Uh, and the story just turns, and I just, I thought, wow, that was so fun. So fun. What an adventure. And and my escort to the festival, you know, when when things like the, this have happened to me, it's made me feel a kind of destiny as if it were written. I'm so escorted so perfectly to and from where I wanted to go. Um, when I wrote the book, I wrote it with that in mind, that there seems to be a theme of magic that I recognize. And I also wrote it so that it would feel like fiction, like you're reading, you know, fiction because memoirs are very boring, I think. And, you you know, as much as you might want to know the way people write about what they did in a kind of diary form is boring. And then I did this and then they said that. And frankly, I feel like that. And so I was like, oh, okay. So I looked at a couple, I looked at Rita Hayworth's and, uh, cause I, I like Rita Hayworth and, um, well, Ava Gardner. And I thought, well, clearly somebody else wrote these. These aren't, these are written <laughs> by the hand of Ava. And, right. Uh, right. And also I read um, 
Scott Gil Scott Heron, a Gil Scott Heron book that had come out, and and he wasn't writing that either. He this is edited in mid idea or mid thought. So I thought, well, I have that going for me. You know, I'm I know where I want to go and why I'm going there, and I'll just keep keep writing it. And that much because there's a theme is yeah. going to make it a better memoir because. Um, I recognize that they're there, you know, to make a good book, because many people might have interesting lives. I have an extraordinary life. But to convey that into literature, you have to have a theme so that the reader has a good adventure with you. Yeah. Well, you succeeded on that because it felt like an adventure, a harrowing one at times. There are some there's some there's some dark moments in here, you know, and you have some some very painful stuff with with family and with a lot of other stuff. But I'm glad you mentioned the term magic because I found myself very, you know, we we spoke in 2019 for Aquarium Drunkard and we talked about, um, we were discussing your song Satellite from Flying Cowboys, yeah. the record you made with, speaking of somebody who's passed away, Walter Becker. Um, yeah. And you told me, I'll never forget this because this hasn't happened very often. I've done a lot of interviews, but very few times have I felt sort of like a lightning bolt moment like this. But you said, you know, that when you were writing that song, you were aiming for joy. And then I told you that I had included that song a few years earlier on a playlist that I had titled Joy is the Aim um, after a Mary Margaret O'Hara song that I also included in it. But anyway... To me, that synchronicity was such an exciting thing. And I wonder if when you talk about looking back on your on your life like this, do you notice little things like that, little synchronicities where it feels like the story, like you said, had been foretold in some some way? How do you define yeah. magic, you know, these days? Well, I think you know the answer to that. Yes, I definitely found places where at, when I laid this story out before me, I'd already felt that way. But when I laid it out before me, it was awesome. Yeah, um, yeah. I've always felt the connection to the invisible world. And there's no words to describe what that is. But the way that it manifests before me, I go, well, that, you know, these are some pretty impossible <laughs> and wondrous connections as if, you know, as if they're written from a place above time and outside of time. So um, what is magic? Well, I, I assign a kind of goodness to magic. I, I feel like it can be many things, but the answer that comes up right now when you ask me is, it's the way the invisible world speaks to us. Mm. We experience it as non-linear, non-sequitur even. And, but it's not, it's just a different language than the one that we have to use to live here. And we see it all the time in coincidence and, um, and in other things that are inexplicable. So uh, that's what I think. In my life, it's consistent and it's not explainable. And I have no doubt that it is. I don't have to explain it. Do you feel like the music evidences it? Do you feel like when you hear the music, you go, that had to involve these chance elements and this thing of the unknown, of the invisible world uh, impact? Music. Some of it? I love music, yeah. But... Um, you know, music 
I don't know why, but, and so there's music and then there's singing, two different, really different things. But singing, as we make that sound resonate against our skeleton and it, and it goes out into other people, it, it is so, uh, it evokes so much passionate emotion in people that for the singers, for us singers, we know we're dealing with something like that magic cactus. <laughs> you know, we know it's an elixir that takes people further than anything else, music as well. So um, I feel like I'm not wanting to answer because I don't have an answer for it. I can make up a lot of stuff, but that's but okay. Yeah, you don't ha- you don't have to do that. I have an answer. <laughs> I do wonder in terms of the 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 contrast between writing uh, lyrics and writing you know music, and then the process of writing a book how different they are, or if you found that there were similarities or overlap? Well, people have said the book is like my lyrics, which at first I was baffled. But now, as a few months have gone by and I've read some stuff, I recognize how, and they've said things like the rhythm of it, and I'm like, what? But suddenly I understand that there is a music taking place, a music of revelation a subtle thing that's that's the way I do things. I thought that's the way I do things, but it's the way I write music as well. So um, what did you ask me again? I think I was oh, just... the lyrics, the difference between lyrics and writing, right? Sure. So a lyric is you try, you, you say a great deal with just a little bit. And that could be the fault of the book. It's I continued to say a great, a great deal with a little bit for for three hundred pages. Um, <laughs> so you know, because every every two pages, you just a lot has gone on. Um, but but you're using prose in the book. I had to do a thing that was very unnatural to me, which was to explain. Yeah. So if yeah. I say. We went in prison at eight o'clock. In prison, you have to do it. And because I assume you get that. I don't know why. I assume you know that, you get that, you did that. My friend had to go, they don't know. <laughs> you yeah. have to tell them. I mean, if they have to tell them, I don't even want to talk to them. So it was a big <laughs> process of going. you can't expect them to know what you know. And and it was a life-changing thing that I had taken for granted that what I knew, everybody else knew. So that was a wonderful thing that I learned about writing a book. The other problem with the book that makes it great, don't get me wrong, it, it is a beautiful book, but it's much harder to say get it to an agent to make a film out of it because it's not one simple story. It's so deep that um, how could you ever represent this book in film? I think there are a bunch of wonderful stories in it, uh, wonderful ways to represent in film, but I don't think anybody's going to be licensing The Last Chance Texaco and making a movie out of it. But that's okay because people will read it, right? Well, yeah, yeah. Did you read the audiobook yourself or did you have- Yeah, yeah, I did. Uh-huh. Yeah, I haven't I haven't listened. I want to listen to it next to hear if I can um 
I want to hear some of those rhythms in action, you know, because I do, I do think there is a pace to the book. I have such a strange way of speaking. Um, and it took a while as I listened, I went, wow, I'm really going to get in the way of the book. But as I kept listening, I, I kind of liked it. I thought, I wish I spoke a little faster, but, um, but I haven't read anybody going, you should not have read <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, don't, don't, don't look too hard. You'll find yeah. somebody saying something terrible anywhere if you look hard enough. Um, you know, it's funny that you mentioned, though, that it's not... It's, it's funny that you mentioned that you don't think it would necessarily make a great movie because it does feel strikingly cinematic at a lot of points. Yes. Um, yes. And so... One, I think that it would be um, maybe could be a better t television program than a serialized TV program than a single movie. But but two, um, how important is sort of cinema and, and the sort of like the, the language of setting a scene in a sort of visual way? You know, how important is that to you? And was that something that you thought to yourself when you were writing the book? I want to have a sense of that because it's somehow it's in there. There's a, I, I don't know. I almost feel like there's lighting in there. You know, I don't know. <laughs> That's wonderful. Uh, I think I just, I, I managed to do what I do in songs, which is to make it real. And I don't know how I did that, but I, I people have said, I really feel like I was there with you. Right. So I managed to light the scene. Um, and I, I'm so glad to hear you say that. Um, it, I wasn't thinking at all about films, but I there's a few th there's a few answers to what you said. I've so wanted other people to interpret my work. Yeah, other singers, uh, directors, people to engage my work and take it out into the larger world. Um, and it wasn't a thing I wanted when I was 25, but I really, I really do now. And it's not that I understand I can't control it or don't want to control it. I want to see what happens when somebody else takes this thing and takes it out. I'd love to see it done well. The problem is I haven't ever seen a good movie about a musician ever. Huh. And uh, so I think that the, if anybody wrote a screenplay, it would have to be about the little girl or the teenager or the car or the hotel. And because when they just don't know how to tell, show us, you know, they always make us look <laughs> dreamy and clownish. <laughs> what I mean? They, they, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I, 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 I'm tempted to say maybe there have been some good movies made about musicians, but none. But yeah, none. none well, they're 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 all fictional when I think about them. Spinal uh -huh, Tap. Yeah. Spinal Tap is a great movie about music, but because it's not a real band, it's all the bands. You know. That's, yes. Yeah. Yeah, that is a great movie, but it. it <laughs> <laughs> so but it's irreverent and i guess when they try to be uh you know tell an important story they they get it wrong that that sense of importance and that sense of like sort of self-seriousness mm -hmm. i, I want to say that that the book doesn't fall into that it yeah. doesn't it doesn't it doesn't fall in you 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 write very affectingly and very like 
you're you're a funny writer as well as everything else. You know, there's there's a comedy to it in a way, a gentle comedy at times, and then sometimes less gentle. But it's all in there, you know. At the same time, you aren't afraid occasionally to become very lyrical in the in the pages, and and I love that 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 happens so often near the end of chapters you'll do this sort of beautiful little dissolution it'll just sort of dissolve the chapter just sort of fades out you know and um and early on you 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 write this quote about how music shapes us and how once it grabs a hold i'm not quoting it 100% correctly yeah. but once it grabs a hold it never lets go and and i just found myself struck by the the prose element of it so it feels to me like you you felt free at some point to be able to hop between these approaches we're yeah. a little more impressionistic now now we're talking hard details now we're scene setting and now we're drifting off into the cosmos yeah. you know and to me that mu that seems like that is evidence of the kind of fun you were having and the kind of engagement that you were having with this i knew when 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 walter becker passed away and you wrote a piece for rolling stone um i remember just finishing that and being like holy shit what a great writer so i was a little teed off with the book but do you feel like you want to do you feel like you want to write more do you feel like that yeah i am i am writing more now i'm writing short stories of some of the people that were in the book some people you didn't meet I like this very short story form and it's already taking, I think it will take a shape, you know, a larger shape. I always trust that that will happen. Yeah. But I'm really enjoying these, these characters they didn't get to meet before, like David Runyon omnibus, just little stories of people. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that sounds great. I can't wait to, to read that. We've, we've touched a little on your, your, your days in Phoenix, but eventually you, of course, move out to to LA, and you're you're gonna yeah. be a star, or you're gonna play music. Um, and I wanted to ask a little bit about some of the artists who maybe inspired you most to want to go out there. You you write about Laura Nero and hearing her for the first time. What what was that? What was that like? What kind of impression did she make on you? Well, I, she, I'd already been primed by West Side Story. And I had this, I was enamored of the, the East Coast rough, big city life. You know, Phoenix was the antithesis of that. And um, I wanted to, and, and her stories, you know, I'd had this brief episode in Chicago that I talk about. And her stories reminded me of those characters I'd met, tough Puerto Rican girls, and even that one album cover she had with the purple lipstick. <laughs> even she, in a way, wove a fiction about. So when you enter her songs, yeah, yeah, you're ready for it. So I think that um, that's she represented the possibilities of other lives. She continued the the characters I met in West Side Story, she was a storyteller and she used music. And that was thrilling to me. Yeah. 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 How about the more West Coast stuff? I mean, you showed up and it was sort of like maybe the 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 Laurel Canyon thing had sort of maybe evaporated a little bit, but there was still stuff happening and there was still this 
this thing. Were there any specific reasons that that you decided I want to go to LA uh, versus going to the East Coast, or was it just geographic well, proximity? That's what I was gonna say. Was it just well, this is the closest big city. I'm gonna head over there, see what's what. <clears throat> yeah, I, I'd say it was proximity, and and LA was the is and was the center of show business of music of you know i didn't really think of new york as a center of hippies they might have been there but you know they were over in california and i wanted to be near them yeah 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 when you look back on those those early days in in la how does it how does it feel now to to reflect back? Like when I came when I was 18 and went to Venice, is that what you mean? Yeah. Or when I was younger? <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, everything is seen through the eyes of the person that you were. So the perspective I had, it would be great if I could have a perspective through those eyes, but I've changed so much that I'm not, on any street in LA anymore. I'm not experiencing life from the beginning and the hill to come. I've gone way over that hill and down into the valley. Yeah. But but I can tell you that Venice was just it had whatever it had been in the 60s or the 50s, it it, it was dead. And there were only a few living souls there, some leftover uh, Jews from the Holocaust who lived down at the other end. And on the edge, um, there were the very beginnings of black gangs. And here on the beach, a few ragtag people trying to start businesses and go to college. So what it is now, is a horrific skeleton, a, a living zombie of what it was then. Mm. What it is now is a bunch of cheap merchants and homeless people. And and even though we were very poor, <laughs> there was a dignity about us. There's <laughs> no dignity there in business anymore. It I don't know what it's become. So I don't know if that's what you were looking for, but... But when I look at the path behind me and, and what's become of it, it uh, it's, it's, it's too bad. But yeah. I know that young people will make the best of that thing. So because we're so full of life, we come in and make the best of it. But it looks pretty, pretty broken to me now. Yeah, yeah. How long have you been in New Orleans? Let's see. Well, off and on about uh, uh, seven or eight years. Yeah, yeah. You're pretty happy there at this point? Yeah, I I came here for two reasons. First was the traffic, because I spent all my day in a car going somewhere in L.A. And the other is the money, because uh, there's just something wrong if if it costs a million dollars to buy a house, a crappy house, and the rest of the country doesn't spend a million dollars in a, you know, in, in right. 10 years. So it was just wrong to be there. Yeah. I, I love to visit. I've lived there, you know, for the better part of my life off and on. But this place, you know, and the South probably in general, but this place still has living, living remnants. So it can't be a remnant if it's living, but it still has the past. 
yeah. alive and well. And so much courtesy, which um, made me feel a part of the world. You know, every time I go out, my neighbors talk to me. Kids who are 12 or 14 say, hi. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's so beautiful. Yeah. 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 That's great. I, I'm thinking about the the cover of the book and uh it's yeah it's, and 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 I was and I was thinking about the choice that you made uh to include you've you've got a beret on the cover of course mm-hmm. famously you know that was a that's a big part of your visual look you know your your statement um did you ever consider did, did you consider other photos for the cover? Were there, were there any beret-less photos uh, that you considered? The cover was meant to draw your eye. So if I was naked and looked good, I'd have put that on the cover. <laughs> I had a couple photographs from a pirate session that hadn't been used very much. Yeah. Um, and they were beautiful. Um, but... And I was, you know, they, they were, I was going to use those for a couple of years, but every once in a while I'd see this cover. I had it for my Google name or something. And, um, and suddenly I said, oh my God, that's so definitive. And nobody's seen that picture, that girl leaning on the car. That's from the first few months uh, of the record. So um I just thought it, it it would invite you to what's coming in the book and also catch the eye. If my book was ever in a bookstore in the airport, <laughs> which it'll never be, but if it was, <laughs> it would catch your eye. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When we spoke the last time, you told me you felt like the debut album at, in 2019 remained your favorite. Um, yeah, it um, But it sounds like Pirates and, and this it sounds pirates was a was a big deal as well. That was you really pushing, in a way. Um, was it that situation where it's like you know they always say you have your your whole life to write your first album and then, you know, then you have to come up with a second one. Um, were you pulling from songs that you had already written when you when you went into pirates, uh, or was a lot of it new? All of it was new. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you do have your whole life. Uh, and and those first songs are full of your dreams and plans and the power to to make dreams come true. The second record, in my case, was to prove that the first record wasn't a fluke because people really wanted to go. Well, there's another woman we're going to throw away after her hit is over and such success, such notoriety. How will she ever survive it? And I thought the only way I'm going to survive it is to absolutely ignore it and make something totally different than, but not totally different because I want to continue the idea of characters and storytelling, but I'm not going to be so sweet. You know, there'll be no, no sweetness on this record and I, I have the feeling Pirates is kind of masculine. It's the masculine thing to the very feminine first record. I'm not sure why people like it better, because to me, the first record has so many great songs. I, I um, love the overall piece of Pirates, but, but I don't hear anybody covering very many of my songs, period. But if they did, they'd probably go to 
the first record first. So maybe they see that as dismissive because it's friendly and we dismiss friendly things. But I quite love Last Chance Texaco, Saturday Afternoons. Company is a very different kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I question the production of some of the, even at the time of things like Danny's All-Star Joint, but because I would have done it rougher, but I stand by what the producers chose to do with those things. And I think they've remained interesting through the years, 40 years, 50 years. Yeah, when you say you would have done it rougher, you remember like having conversations like that in the studio that you were nervous that it was too glossy? We wouldn't have used that word because uh, that, that would have been insulting. Sure. But, but yes, I think, um, would I have, you know, I'm just, I can't tell you for sure if I would, because it was my first time in the studio. Yeah. So if I would challenge somebody, what am I going to, how do I say I don't like the way the bass player is doing that on the four chord or something? Because I, I just don't know what anything is. But I <laughs> sense that it was way too, and my vocabulary as a musician was limited. So I would have felt it was big. It's not like, you know, it's not like Elvis with the upright bass. And you can hear the, the fingers thumping. They took out as much noise as they could. Sure. A very noisy guitar player. So they made it very, as perfect as they could. I wouldn't have done that. And as you can see from later records, I didn't. But people like that sound from me. And at the end of the day, we're in business. And... Um, if I, if I like a noisy record and nobody buys it, I have to th- I have to rethink that. You know, yeah. If, if it's not an artistic statement, you know, the music and the writing and the singing is the artistic statement. I just never felt the production. You know, my blood isn't there in the production, so it, it's okay with me if it's smoother or not smoother. Yeah, yeah. You talk about this this SNL moment and how how nerve-wracking it was. I can't even imagine the sort of pressure and the stress of this situation <laughs> where here you are, not entirely unknown, but relatively unknown to much of America. They didn't totally know. Totally unknown. Yeah, they didn't. hadn't come out yet. Yeah. Right, right. So so how did you, How did you? I mean, what was going through your head? You you write a lot about what was going through your head, but but when you, how often do you watch a performance on SNL these days? Oh, never, never, uh, right? So they don't—they don't sound very good most of the time. Nine times yeah. out of ten, I don't feel like the performances sound okay. Your sounds—your right. sounds pretty good. Um, so, so I must—I have to imagine that we're talking about magic. That must have felt a little bit like one of those magic moments. But, mm-hmm. but, but you were worried they were going to cut the second song, and so yeah. was that going through your head as you start in? No. Once I stood in front of the camera, I was aware that this is a moment where all life will change if you do it right. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, don't faint because that's a lot of pressure. Don't start shaking or you won't be able to say, ah! (laughs) Be focused. And and like I wrote, I think probably 40 seconds in, I had gotten over the fear and was like already going downhill. It went by so fast. Yeah. And um, 
I, I, I don't know if I left it in the book, but my mother said when I called her afterwards, she said, oh, my God, I could tell you were so scared. I thought I was going to faint. Only my mom could see by my f- expression that I was like, <gasps> when I've seen it, I've gone, ah, you look fine. Nobody yeah. could tell yeah, yeah. You, I think you write about almost feeling like you're hearing the words come out of your mouth, and you're like, "Well, they're the right words. I'm doing okay." You know, like, and it's that feeling of almost like leaving your body to witness this thing happening. That that must. I mean, have you felt other? I mean, how often do you feel that sort of thing in a live performance? Has it happened I'm other not times? Feel that. <laughs> Just I try, you know. I think I played at Carnegie Hall for um, the jazz record. I forget which one it was, and that was a very. I had put some pressure on myself, and I and I did a really good job. That stuff happens when you put pressure on yourself, yeah. and I really try not to do that. I try to keep things measured. Every performance is important. Otherwise. Um, I mean, I know it's an amazing ride, but then if you slip at all, you'll condemn yourself. And it doesn't have, that was a real thing Saturday Night Live. But the other stuff is kind of ego stuff. So mm. it's hard to keep that ego out yeah. and, uh, and just enjoy it all. I can't think of another one except maybe Carnegie Hall. <laughs> when you... Uh, you 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 had talked about um wait, sorry i completely lost my train of thought i don't know i don't know how i'll cut this part out <laughs> uh uh what i was going to say was when when you started in into the music business you know you talked about how there were these sort of literate and progressive things on the radio these really smart interesting things but but by the time growing up but then by the time you get to doing your thing, you don't dig what's on the radio. You're not feeling very connected in that regard. And yeah. you're kind of doing your own, you're in your own lane a little bit. And I and I wonder, did you think at the time, if you had to sort of come up with like, who are my contemporaries? Aside from the people who you just knew, you know, people like Tom Waits and, and Chucky, like, you know, did you, were you thinking in terms of like, where does my music fit into the sort of overall lineage of rock and roll or, or music history? Were you thinking that really at all? I think I was inventing something new. That's what I thought I was doing. Yeah. I was bringing um, this femme fatale, uh, femme fatale idea from the 50s into the 1970s. I didn't see her anywhere. All I saw was Farrah Fawcett. So I went, I'm going to bring this dame with hat and gloves. I like her. I'm going to be her. And I, yeah. I stayed with that. So other folks, if there were any other folks, you know, the, the, not the punk rockers, but the rockabilly guys were also hearkening back to another time. So there were some kids doing that kind of thing, but nobody was doing the particular thing I was doing. And I fed off being the only guy doing it. Um, it gave me authenticity, I guess, is the word they like. <laughs> and it also made the setting of these songs different because, um, you know, if I put on a, a polyester dress and fair faucet in my hair and sang these songs, well, you know, you want a new 
clear creature that's that's singing these songs. So David Bowie reinvented himself all the time, but his characters were kind of um, uh, they were a little uh, thin, right? They're really personal, his own personal identities. He tries to bring them out and have you understand what he's saying. But but I had, you know, the hair and the this and the that. And to me, a 23-year-old girl, that was enough. <laughs> sure, sure, <laughs> sure. You... you devote a lot of time in the book we as i've mentioned to to your family you know and you had these vaudevillian grandparents and and your dad and your mom you devote a lot of time about them you know a lot of a lot of page space to discussing the, your family and and i wonder if it informed you know you have you have your own family now you have a daughter you know was were there did this book inspire conversations with with her about things that maybe you just sort of like had to dig up or or you know I, I I'm curious how it affected your relationship with her. Well, she stays out of my conversations, so I can't answer your thing. Um, I understand. Sorry. Yeah, that's okay. It's no problem. <laughs> it's a hard answer to give folks. Yeah, was that was that a but you know how, how did it feel to revisit? You know, you're con- I mean, we never really it's not like we forget our connections with our parents. It's that's like you said, that stuff is cemented in our in our minds. But what was the process like of going back and thinking about them? Did you find yourself thinking about them just in light of being a person who has, you know, survived and lived through so much? You know, writing it down so other people could read about it was itself a process, a change, a challenge, because all these things that are hard are private business. And I can see my mother there in that picture going, you're not supposed to tell anybody about those things. Right, right. So there, I can always, if I wanted to imagine that they're saying they're condemning me for having uh, let them be seen in any kind of an ill light. But I think what's hap- what I set out to do was to say family is complicated and nobody, you know, unless they're abusive and horrible people, nobody is a villain. Nobody gets it right. Nobody gets it all wrong. I forgive my family and hopefully they forgave me in turn for the ways that I hurt them. Family is complicated and, and mine is way up there <laughs> And the higher thing of complicated. And my life story also is an unusual and fantastic story. And and the jewel seems to be the music that I've got to give, but it's not the only story. And that was what I thought, all these are, are worth telling and nobody will be harmed by the telling of them. I won't ever tell the worst about anybody or say the worst about anybody. I'll try to tell. I'll try to tell a measured and hopeful story. And I think that's what I did. <laughs> no, yeah, no, you, you, you certainly, you certainly did. Uh, you, you also, of course, write about you know some some relationships from the past. 
forgive me because I'm going to have to do one more um, question and then I got to go. Oh, no, that's that's totally that's totally good. I, I think that what we where I would like to, to wrap up is by asking you. I really uh, enjoyed talking to you. Today. Oh, I absolutely, Ricky. It's it's like a it's a real thrill. I I enjoy it. I was what I wanted to 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 wrap up with was asking. A couple years ago, you issued record some your first couple records on your own label. Yeah. Are you in control of all of your your masters at this point? Do you have the uh, the rights to do all everything you want with your? That's a good question. Not exactly, but kind of. Um. A number of people sued Warner Brothers to have possession of their masters because somebody wasn't paying attention and, and let it get by that the artist could have them back. But of course, Warner Brothers stopped that lawsuit. And um, so what my manager at the time did was get me the rights to them for 10 years. So, you know, Hope I live longer than 10 years, but I have them for a long period to come. And I can do in America, not Europe. I can uh, I can put them out and make money from them. And hopefully uh, I had wanted to put out Pirates with the first record and do something really great um, and have it in place when the book came out. But I just didn't have it all together. So yeah, it's <laughs> yes, I do have I do have it, and I'll also own the magazine and Flying Cowboys before we're done. So there you go, there you go. Well, that's great to hear, and I'm glad that it's in your hands for right now. Um, Me too. And, and that you can can do what you need to do with it, um, Ricky. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me, and thanks for writing this great book. It was a real pleasure. Thanks for talking about it. I appreciate it. All right. Have a good one. Thank you. All right. Have fun in Phoenix. I will. Have a good night. Bye. Bye. But how come here don't come in PLP? Thanks for listening to Transmissions. I'm Jason Woodbury. I write, host, and produce the show. Editing and sound by Andrew Horton. Sarah Goldstein makes our art, and Jonathan Mark Wallace does a visualizer version of the show. Our executive producer is Aquarium Drunkard founder Justin Gage. AD is by heads, for heads, so hit us up on Patreon. Help us keep making the show. We'll be back next week with Nathan Salzberg of the Alan Lomax Archive to discuss his new album of gorgeous Jewish music, The Psalms. Hope you'll join us. Stay safe until then. Thanks for tuning in to Transmissions. Transmissions.